the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering. Looking forward to sharing a conversation with Pastor Mark Strong. Dr. Strong is the pastor of Life Change Church. He's also the host of Life Change, the program heard here on KPDQ weekdays. I should say weeknights, 9.45 p.m. right here on 93.9 FM. So looking forward to a conversation with him. And I hope you'll stick around for that. Also, a new study indicates that one third of schizophrenia cases in young men is linked to heavy marijuana use. We'll share more on that later in the second hour of today's program as well. But first, to look at some of the day's headlines. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas gave a new warning to migrants seeking entry into the United States, saying those who arrive at the border after Title 42 expires at midnight tonight will be ineligible to claim asylum. Now, how or whether or not they can pull that off remains to be seen. But the Homeland Security Secretary addressed reporters uh, today in promised briefing on the Biden administration's plan to respond to the massive influx of migration that comes as the Title 42 public health order lifts. Well, the government will now use its authority under Title 8 to impose steep penalties on migrants who cross the border illegally, including a minimum five-year ban on reentry and potential criminal prosecution, according to the secretary. I want to be very clear. Our border is not open, he said. People who cross our border unlawfully and without a legal basis to remain with a, uh, will be promptly processed and removed. Now, this would have been information, I would think, would have been useful to those making their way and standing and waiting to cross the border as soon as it lifts at midnight tonight. But the announcement was made today. The Biden administration's warnings come as the Border Patrol agents made another 10,000 migrant apprehensions on Wednesday, the third day in a row, according to Customs and Border Protection sources. Border Patrol has seen the highest daily totals ever recorded this week in anticipation of the end of Title 42. Currently, Customs and Border Protection has approximately 26,000 migrants in federal custody. Capacity across the southern border is about 19,000. And again, there are 26,000 in federal custody, giving some perspective. We expected to see large numbers of encounters initially. We are already seeing high numbers of encounters in certain sectors, Mayorkas said. This places an incredible strain on our personnel, our facilities and our communities with whom we partner closely. We prepared for this moment for almost two years and our plan will deliver results. It will take time uh, for those uh, results to be fully realized, and it is essential that we all take this into account, end quote. Well, according to sources, the priority uh, right for the um, uh, Border Patrol now is avoiding images of overcrowding and processing migrants as fast as possible. Authorities earlier this week greenlit safe mass street releases if CBP and non-government organizations uh, partners cannot hold them. It means that the largest wave of mass releases in history has already begun and will continue 
in the coming days, despite the Homeland Security Secretary's announcement. Well, since 2020, both the Trump and Biden administrations have used Title 42 to expedite deportations because of COVID-19. In March, 46 percent of all encounters resulted in Title 42 expulsion. With the administration announcing Title 42 will be lifted, migrants have surged to the border in the belief that they are more likely to be released into the U.S., And though the administration has made plans for the mass release of migrants, the Homeland Security Secretary insisted that the border is not open and said human traffickers were spreading misinformation to those looking for a better life in America. He encouraged those seeking asylum in the U.S. to take advantage of the generous legal pathways the administration has provided to immigrants, including the CBP One mobile app, which can schedule appointments as port of entry at port of ports of entry pressed on whether the overcrowding at border patrol facilities and necessary release of some migrants undermines the administration's message. Mayorkas dodged the question. Number one, we cannot overstate the extraordinary talent and heroism of United States border patrol and the personnel of the department of Homeland security that are managing through an extraordinary challenge and doing so successfully. Well, we certainly cannot underestimate their commitment, their extraordinary effort, but to be overwhelmed means no one, regardless of their initiative, would be able to hold back the tide. Number two, he went on to say it is very important to understand that the great majority of people will be removed if they do not qualify for relief under the laws of the United States. Well, again, a decision to authorize all Border Patrol sectors to begin safe mass releases of migrants to city streets if non-governmental organizations are over capacity will take place in line with a 2022 memo that was uncovered during legal proceedings initiated by Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody last year and outlined how to handle releases when Title 42 ends. Well, on Tuesday, it was reported that top border officials in Washington, D.C. have decided to authorize all Border Patrol sectors to begin the releases if Customs and Border Protections and NGOs can't hold migrants. We know already with Title 42 in place, they cannot hold migrants. So this will be the practice. It means that they will be released at bus stops, gas stations, supermarkets and elsewhere. The decision was made amid a surge of migrants across the border that has hit Over 10,000 a day across multiple days this week. NGOs are already approaching their limits on capacity, and those numbers are expected to only get worse in the coming days when Title 42, which always, uh, or I should say, allows for the rapid expulsion at the border due to COVID-19, expires. The releases, by the way, are in line with an internal memo published in May of 22 by Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz, which outlined guidance for situations when immigration and customs enforcement is unable to accept um, the illegal immigrants due to a lack of space. And instead, they must be released from custody to prevent overcrowding. We're going to take a break, but we will continue to work our, we, our way through some of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also coming up later in our second hour, uh, Dr. Mark Strong, pastor of Life Change Church and host of Life Change, the radio program, heard here weekdays at 9.45 p.m. on KPDQ-FM. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Americans may be divided on a number of immigrants, um, 
to admit every year, whether to prioritize family or employment in selecting them or how to deal with the millions here illegally. But most understand that this country can only function under the rule of law. And the administration's handling of immigration and the border is as lawless as it is, well, incapable of managing the issue. After May 11th, that's today, border agents will no longer be able to expel people attempting to enter the country illegally under Title 42. Post Title 42, um, those who are being processed at the border or apprehended as they try to sneak in can only be removed under regular immigration law. Well, apparently, even some Democrats are realizing that the uh, blunder is about to be a massive disaster. One can only hope that those who observe what has happened, what is likely to happen and expected to happen after the lifting of Title 42 midnight tonight uh, is going to be a disaster. One can only hope that we're all wrong, that that will be the case. Let's hope that the policy in place will somehow miraculously produce the result that we're being told is the uh, the goal and we can manage our southern border. At present, it's as if we have no southern border. Well, the FBI did not comply with the House Oversight Committee's subpoena compelling the production of an FBI document that a whistleblower alleged describes a criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Joe Biden and a foreign national and relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, a Republican out of Kentucky, subpoenaed the FBI for the document, which is an FBI-generated FD-1023 form after a whistleblower alleged that the FBI and Justice Departments were in possession of it and claimed it detailed an alleged criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Biden and a foreign national relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions. Well, they said the whistleblower alleged the document includes a precise description of how the alleged criminal scheme was employed as well as its purpose. Now, we've been down this road before. There was a a dossier that we were told offered proof of wrongdoing on the part of the the, uh, campaign of then-candidate Trump. After years, after an impeachment and so on, we discovered that that was false. So while it may be satisfying to opponents of the administration to consider that there may have been misconduct, one should not rush to judgment. In America, you're innocent until proven guilty. We have not seen that evenly applied across political spectrum, but... Uh, One would be wise before drawing a conclusion. An FD-1023 form is used by FBI agents to record unverified reporting from confidential human sources. The form is used to document information as told to an FBI agent, but recording that information does not validate or weigh it against other information known by the FBI. So this would be a document that uh, the FBI generates when a report has been made. This letter responds to your subpoena authorized on May 3rd, 2023, demanding the production of documents within one week. As this was your first communication with the FBI seeking this information, please know that the FBI is committed to beginning the constitutionally mandated accommodation process. The letter from the FBI. FBI to the GOP states the FBI is committed to working to provide the committee information necessary for your legitimate oversight interests, while also protecting executive branch confidentiality interests and law enforcement responsibility. So there you have the parameters of the FBI's response. The FBI appreciates this opportunity to inform you of our confidentiality interests so that we can seek optimum accommodation through a realistic evaluation of each other's needs and avoid the polarization of disputes. 
The FBI added, we are committed to working together through this process. And FD-1023 is one of many forms the FBI uses to collect and catalog information for its law enforcement and national security work. This form is used by FBI agents to record unverified reporting from a confidential human source, the letter states. The FBI went on to explain that confidential human sources are critical to the work of the FBI, as well as other members of the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement communities. Department of Justice policy strictly limits when and how confidential human source information can be provided outside of the FBI. The letter goes on to say, you have asked for what you say is a precise description of an alleged criminal scheme contained in a simple FD-1023 report. You express concern that the FBI is inappropriately or has inappropriately failed to disclose such a report to the American people. The FBI states it is critical to the integrity of the entire criminal justice process and to the fulfillment of our law enforcement duties that FBI avoid revealing information, including unverified and incomplete information that could harm investigations, prejudice prosecutions or judicial proceedings, unfairly violate privacy or reputational interests or create misimpressions in the public. Well, the FBI said even confirming the fact of the existence or non-existence of an investigation or a particular piece of investigative information can risk these serious harms, which is why it is and has long been standard practice for law enforcement agencies to decline to confirm or deny such a fact. So this would, it would appear, put an end to the claim on the part of the former employee, the whistleblower, if you will, who says said document exists and would verify everything that has been claimed. The FBI goes on. Thus, your request for a single FD-1023 report that you say includes a precise description of an alleged criminal scheme risks the harms that our confidentiality rules protect against. They will not confirm or deny that the document exists, that an investigation is ongoing, or that an investigation was ever undertaken. Well, House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer uh, told Fox News uh, Digital that it is uh, clear from the FBI's response that the unclassified record the Oversight Committee subpoenaed exists, but they are refusing to provide it to the committee. Now, it wasn't altogether clear to me that it exists because they said that they cannot confirm or deny that it exists. But he went on to say, again, Comer, we've asked the FBI to not only provide this record, but to also inform us what it did to investigate these allegations. The FBI has failed to do both. Well, Comer went on to add the FBI's position is trust, but you aren't allowed to verify. That is unacceptable. We plan to follow up with the FBI and expect compliance with the subpoena. Well, Comer and Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican out of Iowa, last week notified FBI Director Christopher Wray and Attorney General Merrick Garland about legally protected and highly credible unclassified whistleblower disclosures. Comer and Grassley said that based on the alleged speciality within the document, it would appear that the Department of Justice and the FBI have enough information to determine the truth and accuracy of the information contained within it. Well, the White House has maintained that the president never spoke to his son about his business dealings and has continued to say that the president was never involved in them. Officials also say the president has never discussed investigations into members of his family with the Justice Department. Well, the process, the investigation is ongoing, whether or not it will go anywhere. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. 
Business owners in Multnomah County pay far more in taxes than their counterparts across the Columbia River in Washington, and many wonder whether it's worth it. That's according to the Portland Business Journal. In a newspaper survey, nearly half of business owners listed taxes and regulations as among the top challenges facing Portland area business. This according to Taxpayers Association of Oregon Foundation. While 95% agreed that business taxes deterred companies from moving to or expanding within Portland, instead, they opt to move to the Midwest, to Texas, or Arizona. An analysis by Eco Northwest determined Portland business pays more of their earnings in taxes than counterparts in Beaverton, Lake Oswego, and Vancouver, Washington, and ranked second only to New York City in the combined state and local top tax rates. An Ernst & Young review ranked uh, Portland as the nation's second highest in terms of state and local taxes, including income taxes paid by small business owners. Doesn't exactly commend Portland to those who hope to flourish here. Taxes have jumped 32% from 2019 to 2021 because of city, county, and metro taxes, According to an Ernst & Young study, the three biggest tax increases stemmed from Metro Supportive Housing Services, Multnomah County Preschool for All, which increased in 20, increases in 2026, so you'll be paying more, and the state corporate activity tax, the newspaper reported. And in May, voters will cast ballots on a local capital gains tax that could adversely affect businesses as well. One owner mentioned that local taxes have nearly doubled in the past decade, one business owner could have uh, could save $312,000 by moving across the Columbia River from Portland to Vancouver, as some are. But it's not just taxes that are problematic. In Portland, 79% of small businesses and 83% of restaurants reported burglaries and vandalism, and 30% of restaurant owners reported more than five break-ins. Others reported equipment stolen from their property. And many cite concern for worker safety as reasons for leaving or at least contemplating such a move. So why stay in Portland? Is it just a lovely place? That novel place that everyone thought was sort of a panacea? Well, Portland has fallen off of its perch. And this is just one other bit of evidence as to why businesses are not flourishing or for that matter, remaining in the city. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Pastor Mark Strong. Dr. Strong is the host of Life Change, heard here on KPDQ-FM, 9.45 p.m. That's coming up in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the headline news, and we'll talk with Dr. Mark Strong later in the 5 o'clock hour. So stay with us. Joran Vandersloot, the prime suspect in the 2005 disappearance of Natalie Holloway, an American who vanished while on a high school graduation class trip to Aruba, will be extradited to the United States from Peru, according to her family. Holloway's mother announced the news in a statement almost exactly 18 years later. Her perpetrator, Joran Vandersloot, has been extradited to Birmingham to answer for his crimes, she said. Peruvian authorities agreed to extradite Vandersloot, who is serving a 28-year prison sentence for the murder of a 21-year-old Peruvian, Stephanie Flores, in 2010. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo 
has reemerged in the spotlight and slammed some of the Democratic Party's far left policies, sparking speculation that he's aiming for a political comeback. Nearly two years after the Democrat resigned from office amid mounting pressure over scandals surrounding nursing home deaths during COVID-19 pandemic and allegations of sexual harassment, he's repositioned himself as a commentator who often calls out his own party. Comeback? It could be in the cards. The FBI did not comply with the House Oversight Committee subpoena compelling the production of an FBI document that a whistleblower alleged describes a criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Joe Biden. And lawyers are bracing for AI's potential to upend the legal system with phony evidence, evidence that may be difficult to refute. Again, another glimpse at what they're telling us we might Look forward to, not necessarily positively, when AI becomes more prominent. The Biden administration's strategy for mass release of migrants into the U.S. was devised well in advance, according to a memo. And the end of the southern border on Tuesday, a new record was set for illegal migrants crossing over the U.S. southern border as 11,000 uh, were apprehended by Border Patrol. That record will likely be short-lived. Officials anticipate as many as 14,000 crossing the border a day as the uh, Title 42 comes to an end later today, this evening, to make matters worse, in preparation for the migrant surge, Border Patrol officials are releasing thousands of currently detained migrants in order to free up space for those yet to enter. Furthermore, for these uh, migrants who are released on their own recognizance, there appears to be no mechanism to place in place to ensure that they do in turn uh, return for their asylum hearings. As one senior Border Patrol official observed, saying you are issuing ORs and actually doing it are two very different things. It sounds good to tell the press, but some holding capabilities are already way above 100 percent. Imagine what it will be in the days to come. Representative Santos has been charged. The New York Republican representative was charged with 13 felony uh, rather federal criminal offenses related to his financial disclosures on Wednesday. Santos, who infamously lied about his background and history on the campaign trail, was one of several Republicans in New York to flip Democrat seats in 2022. Ever since his deceitfulness was exposed, Democrats have been demanding his removal. And it appears these charges are motivated more by politics than law. Adding fuel to this speculation is the fact that these charges came after Santos announced his reelection bid. Meanwhile, back in Washington, federal investigators seem entirely uninterested in getting to the bottom of the Biden family's meaning of enriching itself with tens of millions of dollars from foreign sources. Well, they're two very different cases, but interest seems to wax and wane. The famous U.S. Army base in Texas that was before Tuesday, known as Fort Hood, has been renamed due to Um, Demands regarding the expungement of Confederate-affiliated names, Hood is no more. Well, it's there, but the name has changed. Its new moniker, Fort Cavazos, uh, named for uh, four-star General Richard Edward Cavazos, who fought in both Korea and Vietnam during his service in the Korean War. He was awarded the Silver Star and the Distinguished Service Cross, and by the end of his career, he also received two legions of merit, five bronze stars and a purple heart. Seems worthy. Born in Kingsville, Texas, he served 33 years in the Army before he retired in 1984. He died of Alzheimer's at the age of 88 in 2017. Retired Army Lieutenant General Richard Graves noted that uh, Cavazos was known for being very concerned about the welfare of his soldiers. 
The objection uh, many have to the name change has nothing to do with Cavazos, who clearly is a deserving candidate. Rather, it lies in the dismissal of the historical rationale for why Fort Hood was so named in the first place. The recognition of a Confederate military leader was intended as a means of building unity following a bloody civil war. However, the question is whether or not it still holds true so long after the uh, historic civil war and just before what may be another one. Governor Newsom is ambiguous on reparations. The California Democrat governor, Gavin Newsom, decided to engage in a political virtue signal campaign when he launched a reparations task force last year. The fact that California came into the union back in 1850 explicitly as a free state where slavery was outlawed didn't seem to matter. Predictably, the task force um, uh, was, has called for the Golden State to fork out as much as $1.2 million for each um, African-American resident. Whether or not you have a history or background of slavery, already facing a state budget deficit, Newsom has begun to, well, play coy. While lauding the work of the task force as a milestone in our bipartisan effort to advance justice and promote healing, he dodged any commitment to pay out reparations by contending that the legacy of slavery is about much more than cash payments. Rather, he says it's about advancing systematic changes that ensure an inclusive and equitable future for all Californias. Evidently, Newsom's real objective was to teach a master class in political spin, the art of making impossible promises you never intend to keep. He's not the first to do it, and he won't be the last. Now he can claim he's taking the question of reparations seriously. Randy Weingarten has rewritten history again. The biggest no-no in school has always been cheating, which is a form of hiding the truth or, to put it more bluntly, lying. Well, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, who recently revised her own COVID shutdown history, is effectively calling on teachers to hide the truth. On Wednesday, she encouraged teachers to future-proof your social media by purchasing a service that scans your social media to catch forgotten posts that may not reflect who you are today. The service in question is called Life Brand which advertises that it will quickly find potentially harmful posts and then guide you to edit or delete those posts forever. Reeling from a growing number of parents who have organized in efforts to prevent their children from being indoctrinated, Weingarten is seeking to hide any evidence that may expose teachers holding problematic ideological views that run counter to the educational expectations parents have uh, for their children. In other words, she wants to cheat parents out of their fundamental right to know what their children are being taught and by whom. Well, with Title 42 set to expire Thursday, the White House announced on Wednesday the new sweat of uh, set of sweeping rules to curb the anticipated influx. Sadly, they may be too little too late. President Biden greenlighted aggressive power plant emissions restrictions, hamstringing fossil fuel generation and pasta lovers. Beware, you could spend an extra 23 hours a year boiling water due to the uh, gas stove rules under the administration and the FDA is weighing potential over-the-counter birth control pills. A Connecticut liberal arts college says it will pay for students to get abortions. I wonder if the founders of said liberal arts college would have supported that or even anticipated a possibility. And the Southern Baptist Convention lost over 450,000 members in 2022, the largest drop in membership in 100 years. And in a bit of humor, breaking, George Santos arrested, 534 members of Congress still at large. And once again, a bit of humor, 
Border wall covered with Bud Light signs to deter migrants. I mean, nobody here wants it, so maybe they won't. On this day in history, 1502, Christopher Columbus leaves Cadiz, Spain, on his fourth and final trip to the Western Hemisphere. 1858, Minnesota becomes the 32nd State of the Union. 1935, the Rural Electrification Administration is created as one of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal programs. 1958, a tornado devastates Waco, Texas, claiming 114 lives. 1960, Israeli agents capture Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in Buenos Aires, Argentina. 1973, the espionage trial of Daniel Ellsberg and Anthony Russo in the Pentagon Papers case comes to an end as Judge William Bryan dismisses all charges citing government misconduct. 1987, on this day, doctors in Baltimore transplant the heart and lungs of an auto accident victim to a patient who gave up his own heart to another recipient. 1998, India sets off three underground atomic blasts, its first nuclear test in 24 years. Also in 1998, on this day, a French mint produces the first coins of Europe's single currency, the euro. 2006, lawmakers demand answers after a USA Today report that the National Security Agency, or NSA, was secretly collecting records of millions of ordinary Americans' phone calls. President George W. Bush tries to assure Americans their civil liberties are being fiercely protected. 2009, President Barack Obama meets at the White House with representatives of the health care industry who promised to cut $2 trillion in costs over 10 years. Also in 2009, the space shuttle Atlantis blasts off on a mission to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. 2010, conservative leader David Cameron, at age 43, becomes Britain's youngest prime minister in almost 200 years after Gordon Brown steps down and ends 13 years of labor government. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, President Trump unveils his long-promised plan to bring down drug prices. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to be back in just a few moments. Also coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Dr. Mark Strong, pastor of Life Change Church and host of the program by the same name heard here on KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The situation at our southern border negatively affects the lives of migrants who are coming to the United States, as well as U.S. citizens, and it is, in many ways, inhumane. Although residents of other countries always have faced challenges in their journey to become American citizens, under the current policies, they've exacerbated the human and drug trafficking that makes up the the process, the, the journey from one location to our border and beyond. Migrants face several challenges on their trip to the U.S.-Mexico border, and since the president took office in 2021, that was January, About 3,250 acts of violence against migrants, including kidnapping, have been reported in Mexican border cities. One wonders how many have not been reported. Uh, Mexico's uh, northern state is the last stop for Central American migrants before they attempt to cross the U.S. border unlawfully. By the time they get there, many men, women and children have suffered assaults, robberies and abductions at the hands of criminal gangs. Some migrants are killed before they reach the southern border. Uh, Many organized crime groups see migrants as a revenue stream, according to the Migration Policy Institute. The lack of border security created under the current uh, administration misguided and dangerous policy decisions has fueled human trafficking. And many suggest that the cartels actually control the border. 
The administration has terminated migrant protection protocols with Mexico and asylum cooperative agreements with the countries of northern Central America. It also has attempted to end and will Title 42 public health restrictions imposed by the previous administration. And under the ended protocols, migrants seeking asylum at the southern border were returned to Mexico after making an asylum claim illegally and without necessary documentation. Similarly, cooperative agreements allow the United States to send asylum seekers to neighboring countries or deny their applications if they hadn't applied for asylum in other nations as the protocol requires. Well, these U.S. policies stopped the caravans uh, coming to the United States because would-be migrants saw the administration then protect asylum integrity and um, apply consequences instead of allowing uh, folks to cross the border unimpeded. What's going to happen next is the subject of much speculation, and one can only hope that what is expected will far uh, out exaggerate what actually happens. But it's not altogether clear. Well, the consumer price index rose 0.4 percent last month, pushed higher by rising shelter, used vehicles and gas prices. The increase was in line with Wall Street expectations. On an annual basis, the inflation rate was 4.9 percent, slightly less than the estimate and providing some hope that the trend is lower. For workers, real average hourly earnings adjusted for inflation rose 0.1 percent for the month, but were still down 0.5 percent from a year ago. A widely followed measure of inflation rose in April, though the pace of the annual increase provided some hope that the cost of living will will head rather Lower later this year, one can always hope. The Consumer Price Index, which measures the cost of a broad swath of goods and services, increased 0.4% for the month, in line with the Dow Jones uh, estimate, according to the Labor Department report on Wednesday. However, that equated to an annual increase of 4.9%, slightly less than the 5% estimate, and the lowest annual pace since April of 21. The annual rate was 5% in March. Well, excluding... Um, Volatile food and energy categories, core CPI, rose 0.4% monthly and 5.5% from a year ago, both in line with expectations. Increases in shelter and gasoline and used vehicles pushed the index higher and were offset somewhat by declines in prices for fuel oil, new vehicles and food at home. Markets reacted positively to the news with futures turning positive as Treasury yields were lower. Well, a 30-year-old black male named Jordan Neely died on a New York subway system after being put in a chokehold. Uh, it's called a carotid restraint by a 24-year-old Marine veteran named Daniel Penny. Neely was well known as a Michael Jackson impersonator and performer on and around the subway system. However, he hadn't uh, done that particular act in a while. Police arrested Neely 44 times for various offenses, mostly consisting of Violations involving the subway, disorderly conduct, assault, and fare evasion. Neely was a well-known menace for a long time. He was featured on the New York City Top 50 list of homeless people in urgent need of help before he was uh, uh, before his untimely death. Well, at the time of the restraint, Neely was threatening passengers with violence. Witnesses say that he was yelling about being hungry and thirsty and that he would hurt anyone on this train and he wasn't going to uh, take no for an answer. Daniel Penny was just one of several passengers who restrained him at that moment so that he could not hurt anyone. He was placed in a, in a, I think it's carotid, carotid, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, restraint. And at the same time, his arms were restrained by another man. 
Subway passengers didn't attempt to break up the restraint. Witnesses later said that Neely did not appear to be in serious distress. They said he appeared to be moving around fine, just unable to get up from the restraint. Unfortunately, Neely died after being restrained. Medical examiners ruled that his cause of death was a homicide. This simply means that his death was caused by another person, not that there will be any criminal charges against Daniel Penny. That is yet to be determined. That may or may not happen. If Penny is charged, it could be as a result of public pressure because of the ongoing protests that have sort of spiraled out of control. Several elected officials, including Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, took to the Internet to pronounce Neely's death a murder. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander tweeted a statement that can only be characterized as reckless. We must not become a city where a mentally ill human being can be choked to death by a vigilante without consequence. Well, that's mischaracterizing what happened a bit. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said that if it is irresponsible to label an ongoing investigation as complete by assigning guilt or innocence. Well, New York Governor Kathy Hochul released an irresponsible statement on her own. Actions have consequences. This could be taken two different ways, either as a reference to Jordan Neely's out of control behavior on the subway that day or to the actions of the Marine Corps uh, vet who took action to subdue Neely. She later clarified that she was referring to Penny and not Neely. The statements from AOC, Lander and Hochul all feed into a, a tinderbox that is New York City in the wake of Neely's death. The timing of the outrage and protests surrounding his death is a little bit too familiar. Neely is already being compared to George Floyd, who died after an arrest in Minneapolis in 2020. Floyd's death sparked nationwide protests and violent riots just in time for the 2020 presidential election. A second wave of Black Lives Matters protests happened in arguably as a much more furious way than the initial way back during the 2015-2016 time frame, the protests, many of which became riots, not only served as an $82 billion fundraising scheme, but he, they also affected the election cycle both nationwide and in many locales across the country. As soon as the news broke about Neely, New York City almost immediately became inundated with protesters on the subway. People stood on the tracks while chanting various things about Neely and the police, preventing any subway tra- car traffic. Videos also show people being blocked from exiting the train, unable to get to work because of so-called protesters wanting to make a point and be seen. Scenes from the initial BLM wave of the Ferguson and Baltimore rioting were sort of recreated in New York City. Back in 2016, rabble-rouser DeRay McKeeson was famously photographed while being arrested and looking straight into the camera. A few incidents took place in New York City that looked just as uh, looked just like that picture. People got some camera time upon their arrest, most likely in an attempt to get frame, fame and fortune. It's no secret that these types of situations are prime uh, for bad actors to take advantage of and in most certainly already taken place. Jordan Neely was a person who was simply mentally ill and dangerous, like many other homeless people in the New York City area and other metropolitan areas around the country. His death should be a cautionary tale about cities that have become lawless due to the inaction of local authorities. Neely should have been locked up in a mental institution about 20 or so violations ago, instead of being allowed to roam free and terrorize the subway system. Now, that's not to suggest he deserved to die, but it does say that the irresponsibility that preceded his death bears some of the blame. It's unfortunate that he died, but dozens of others have been killed on the subway by people just like him. Many of these people also suffer from drug addiction and 
uh, in addition to their pre-existing mental problems. Since the 1960s, the population of mental institutions have dramatically decreased. It may be time to ramp those numbers up so mentally ill people don't become the next Jordan Neely. They get the care that they need. He said he was hungry and tired. There should have been a place for rest and comfort. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Mark Strong, Dr. Strong, pastor of Life Change Church, is going to be uh, joining me coming up in the next couple of segments. We've got some great programmers here, local programmers. He is one of them. We're going to talk about uh, his church, the program, and how you can help keep it on the air. That's coming up in the next couple of segments, so stay with us. Also, a study says that nearly one-third of schizophrenia caused, uh, cases rather in young men is linked to heavy marijuana use. We'll tell you more about that later in the program as well. Well, Republican and Democratic leaders in the Oregon legislature met today to try to resolve a boycott by GOP senators that's frozen Senate procedures and proceedings, rather, with a deadline looming that threatens the, to disqualify boycotters from being reelected. You remember that uh, measure we passed? Well, some passed. The boycott has uh, delayed action by the majority Democrats on gun safety, abortion rights and gender affirming health care bills, among a lot of other legislation. But those are the ones that are at issue. Thursday marked the ninth day of the walkout. They have 10 before they cannot be reelected under Oregon's new law. Preventing a quorum in the Senate was the goal, with two-thirds of members required to be present for the chamber to debate and vote on bills Republicans have used Uh, the tactic in previous years as well, but not solely. Well, this time, a constitutional amendment approved overwhelmingly in a ballot measure last November disqualifies lawmakers with 10 unexcused absences from re-election. Friday would mark the 10th day of the boycott for some senators in order to uh, give both sides time to come to a deal. Planned Senate uh, sessions for Friday, Saturday and Sunday were canceled. It is my hope, Senate Republican Minority Leader Tim Kamope said, Um, It is my hope that uh, this will give us time to work out a legitimate agreement that will benefit all Oregonians. Republicans in the Oregon Senate um, insist that their uh, their stay away is due to an obscure law that requires bill summaries to be understandable at the um, the eighth grade level. Knope said that Republicans also want Democrats to set aside their most extreme bills. Senate President Rob Wagner said that House Bill 2002, we've talked about it here on abortion and gender um, drugs and surgeries, is not negotiable. On Thursday, after a roll call again showed a lack of a quorum, Wagner declared the session adjourned until Monday and wished everyone a happy Mother's Day. The walkout exploits Oregon's requirement that a two thirds quorum be um, there to conduct legislative business, a threshold that exists in only a few other states. And given the makeup of the Oregon legislature, it can be useful. In Texas, which is a similar requirement, a Democrat staged a walkout a couple of years ago as the Republican-led legislature was considering election legislation. Democrats in Indiana and Wisconsin also skipped legislative sessions a little over a decade ago in their attempt to block Republican bills limiting union power. So it's not exclusive to the state of Oregon. In other news, Governor Tina Kotek has signed a bill allowing the use of photo radar in all Oregon cities. That was House Bill 2095. Uh, All cities in Oregon will soon be allowed to use photo radar to enforce speed limits. The governor 
signed that legislation. Under House Bill 2095, all cities can opt in to use photo radar as long as they pay for the costs of operating it. Previously, only 10 cities statewide had the authorization. Portland, Gladstone, Milwaukee, Oregon City, Beaverton, Tigard, Bend, Eugene, Albany, and Medford. Only the places I tend to go have uh, have had it. The bill estimates uh, restrictions on the number of hours each day that photo radar can operate in a single location. It also gives cities more authority to adjust speeds for certain residential streets up to 10 miles per hour lower than the statutory limit. House Bill 2095 passed the Oregon Senate in late April with bipartisan support after passing in the House. Many uh, mayors around the state expressed their support for the bill before the governor signed it, including Gresham Mayor Travis Stovall, uh, who called automated speed enforcement essential for keeping pedestrians and bicycles safe. During and after COVID-19, we've had uh, we've seen school zones and the surrounding areas become less safe due to speed and less police presence. Sherwood Mayor Tim Rossner he also spoke in favor of the bill and said photo radar would free up limited police resources to focus on higher priority calls. With the advent of crowdsource navigation apps, uh, we're seeing a dramatic increase in traffic cutting through our neighborhoods with the, uh, with disregard for safety and speed limits. Mobile photo enforcement is critical, Rosner said in his written testimony. In Beaverton, the mayor, Lacey um, Beatty also testified in support of the bill in January. Beaverton and Portland were the first cities in Oregon allowed to use photo radar. In a 1995 pilot program, Beaverton started using the photo radar in 2001. According to Beaverton city, uh, city leaders, uh, most recent photo radar data for 21 and 22 show about 75% of citations were given to people with driver's licenses outside of Beaverton, perhaps less familiar with the, uh, the speed limit. Well, the boycott delayed um, action by the majority Democrats on gun safety, abortion rights and gender care. Uh, and we know now that um, the the uh, Republicans who had been out were facing voter approved sanction. We're not altogether clear what the negotiations earlier today uh, actually concluded. Uh, they met uh, to try to resolve the boycott. Um, it's delayed action. And again, I was uh, trying to find out if some sort of an agreement was held. We do know that. Uh, in the state of um, uh, in the state of Oregon, in the legislature, they have denied or rather delayed further action for Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So by Monday, we'll know whether or not a decision has been made on the part of the Republicans trying to stall some of the legislation and constitutional issues they were objecting to. A New York City subway rider accused of choking a homeless man I referred to earlier before the top of the hour is expected to turn himself into police Friday morning to face a manslaughter charge. We can confirm that Daniel Penny will be arrested on a charge of manslaughter in second degree. Uh, The Manhattan District Attorney's Office said we cannot provide any additional information until he has been arraigned in Manhattan Criminal Court, which we expect to take place tomorrow, referring to Friday. On May 1st, Penny, a 24-year-old Marine veteran and college student, put a 30-year-old in a fatal chokehold after uh, what police described as an altercation on the northbound line of the rail. It's not altogether clear what witnesses from that uh, rail who were threatened uh, will be available to testify, uh, but we do know now that uh, manslaughter charges have been filed against that former Marine. Now, who knew that a herring boat 
A herring boat could be the key to clawing back American liberty from excessive regulation by unelected bureaucrats. Well, it's true. Recently, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that calls into question its much-abused Chevron precedent. That precedent, which dates to 1984 and is named for the court's decision in Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council, allows unaccountable regulators within the federal bureaucracy to grant themselves expanded regulatory powers in murky areas of law beyond what the original governing statute had expressly outlined. Well, essentially, the court has taken it up, and I've taken more time than I have. I'll follow up on this another day. But it's a rather interesting uh, case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. Well, coming up, Dr. Mark Strong. He's the pastor of Life Change Church and host of Life Change, the radio program heard here on KPDQ. We want to keep it here. I personally would like to see it stay. We're going to talk about that and much more with Pastor Strong in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Since 2005, one of the family members of KPDQ has been broadcasting here, and I am just delighted to introduce Dr. Mark Strong. He, along with his wife, Marla, serve as the lead pastors of Life Change Church, and he is the host of Life Change, heard here on KPDQ, 9.45 p.m. weekdays. He joins us here today to talk a bit about that ministry and his ministry in general. He and his wife, Marla, are leaders who are in love with one another, their family, the church, and most of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been married for 32 years, and that might have changed in the last few months. They have four children, and shortly after they were married, they began to pastor Life Change Church. Uh, They have served as lead pastors there uh, ever since. He joins us here today to talk about the ministry, the life, and much, much more. Pastor Strong, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Georgie. Well, I have been a great admirer of yours, and especially your wife, Marla. And you can't really say Dr. Mark Strong without saying Mark and Marla. So I want to make sure that I include the role that she has played in ministry uh, in the area that you have been called to for quite some time. So I'm just delighted for the uh, uh, example that the two of you have set in partnership in ministry. So congratulations in that area. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and I, I guess that must be the older boss. So we've been married uh, 35 years, going on 36. I thought that might have been a little short. So yeah. <laughs> almost 36. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, my yeah, husband thanks. and I just celebrated our 41st wedding anniversary oh, on Monday. Congrats. So, <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I wanted to talk to you. I think for many of our listeners, it was in June of 1996 that many of our listeners first came uh, to recognize the church because it was at the time Emmanuel Christian Fellowship. It suffered an arson fire, and that focused the attention not only of the body of Christ in the Portland metro area, but many around the uh, uh, the state as well who were unbelievers. Can you talk a little bit about that that unfortunate introduction and what has happened since? Yes, yeah, so that that was definitely a catalytic moment in the life of our church uh, where God use um, adversity to help us do what we've always had a passion and desire to do, and that was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in 1996, a young man threw uh, two Molotov cocktails through the uh, window in the church sanctuary and burned the church, you know, rendered it useless. So we had, we had to move out during that time, but 
uh, during that, the blessing was we had an opportunity to basically preach the gospel to the whole city of Portland yes. and ac- across the United States. And, you know, just from around the world, we were able just to, you know, just share uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is always, even to this day, has been, you know, our heart and our passion to do. You know, it was an extraordinary moment because at that time, under those circumstances, you could have taken a different um, direction altogether. You chose to honor Christ. You chose to be gracious in your remarks. And I remember being so impressed at the time, and I know many others were as well. But that really began a new phase in your ministry. You relocated. Obviously, the building that you had been in had been uh, rendered uh, useless. And you ended up at a new location. Tell us a little bit about the start of that uh, location and kind of a rebirth of the ministry. Yeah, so so it took us a little it took us a little while to get to our our new location. So our motto after the church was burned was, "If you can find us, you can worship with us." So <laughs> it was it, it was like several years. So we had services uh, at an elementary school. We held services in a tent. We held services at a chapel uh, at another of another congregation. We met in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. So we were kind of all over the map, and it, and it did. It got it got pretty discouraging after a while, just going from place to place to place to place, and and not really having anywhere to land. But um, the the building that we're in now, which is a you know a couple blocks from the church that was burned, I mean, God just gave us a you know just a miraculous uh, miraculous provision and just His faithfulness to be able to get us in that place, and we've been there for over twenty years. And it enabled us to have, have, you know, just a uh, a good ministry to our community and, our, and and to our city as well. So just the faithfulness and the goodness of God to help us. Well, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have the resources to purchase the building, and God provided in a miraculous way. Um, uh, he provided in a miraculous way to get the building renovated, and so it was just uh, one of those. Uh, incredible things. And we look back on it now, we just say, mm-hmm. well, Lord, this was a real Ebenezer in our life, just to show your your faithfulness and your goodness, not just to us, but then also to the people that uh, the Lord has so graciously allowed us to serve. Yeah. One of the themes that you mentioned just in telling that story is we met, and it was in different places and under different circumstances, but the body of Christ, under the name of either Emmanuel Christian Fellowship or Life Chime, you all met. <laughs> You, the yes. body of Christ met your faithfulness yes. uh, was an example to many who looked on, who thought, oh, this might be the undoing of this pastor and his wife. This might be the undoing of this church. And yet you met faithfully. And I think that's a word that really applies to your ministry from that point. It really predates that because God prepared you for uh, for ministry. It, it's faithfulness. That's what I have witnessed as I've observed you over the years ministering in uh, in this city. Uh, and ministering to a congregation very well. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. And that's that's what we just strive to do, you know, just first and foremost. And like I say, even today, you know, our desire is to, you know, love Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then just to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And, and, and he knows what I know, Georgine, that, that that's not always easy. It's not always easy. And there's many times, many, many, many challenges you know, but the grace of God is, has always been present to help us to, to help us be and to do what He's called us to do, and so that that's what we that's what we rely upon and we depend upon constantly. God gave you and Marla a vision uh, at one point of what the church was to become. It was kind of a numeric 
vision, but it really represented much more than than numbers. You now have a second location. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So what's happened is, is most people know that there's been a, a, a lot of um, uh, shifting in North Portland. So the community that was basically, uh, you know, the community that we um, ministered to originally in North Portland has now been moved out. Term we use gentrification, mm-hmm. and so many have moved out into um, the Gresham area, uh, and so what they call the numbers. And so our, our heart was just burdened. It's like there's so many people that are out here. We're we're over here, and we're still ministering to people, you know, on our Williams Avenue site. And, and God is blessed and doing incredible things. But we said, what can we do for the people out there? And so we just began to pray. And after about maybe a four year period, God just miraculously gave us a a facility. It's an old. It's a uh, old Walgreens store, about 14,000 square feet. And at the time when we got ready to purchase it, we had no, we had no money. And I, it's, it's just kind of funny, but it just shows the things <laughs> of God. I remember when we, we were talking to the person about buying the building and the, the guy said to me, he said, well, what is your vision? And I said, well, we, we want to help families. We want to help the community. Uh, we want to bring something positive out here. And these guys are developers. They own shopping centers all up and down the West Coast. And so forth. So I'm, you know, I, I can't really use church lingo, so I can just try to use something that's more kind of conventional to understand. And so I get to give my spill on vision. And the guy says, "Well, how are you going to pay for this?" Uh, he says, "Do you have a uh, money in the bank?" I said, "No." He said, "Are you pre-qualified? You have pre-approval?" I said, "No." He says, "You have uh, uh, people that are going to help write the check and pay for?" I said, "No." He says, "Well, how are you going to do it?" I said, "Well." I said, we, we, we've done this before, and we think that we can do it again. He says, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to call you back tomorrow. So he calls me back the next day, and they have their CFO and some other people in the line, the, the realtor and so forth. And the guy, says, he, the guy says, well, you know, this is really, really, really unconventional for us, and uh, this is not necessarily what we do. He said, but you seem like a sincere person, and so we're, we're going to give you the chance to get this building. And so the Lord let us put a down payment of of uh, sincerity, you know, to be able to purchase <laughs> that building. And and the the wonderful thing about it was a day later there was a a a, uh, a large chain. I won't say the name of it, but a large chain was going to make them a cash offer to buy the building right after they told us that they would give us the shot at buying it. And the Lord helped us, uh, provided for us, and we were able to uh, purchase the building. And we got we got a portion of it. We still have more to do, but. But we're in there. See, that's a man of faith who will approach these business people <laughs> with his pockets empty, but <laughs> makes a down payment of sincerity. That is the favor of God. <laughs> yes, yes. Acting in obedience and faithfulness. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, talking with Dr. Mark Strong. He's the lead pastor of Life Change Church and the host here on KPDQ of Life Change. We'll be back in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I began a conversation with Dr. Mark Strong. He is the pastor of Life Change Church, now with two locations and also the host of Life Change, a program heard here on KPDQ. 9.45 p.m. weekday evenings right here on 93.9 FM. We were talking about uh, what faithfulness looks like, what obedience looks like, and a lot of uh, nerve based on confidence in God's provision and that his uh, His calling uh, is sure. So I'm just delighted to uh, to tell that story. Uh, and to encourage those of you who have yet to uh, hear the program that he hosts here weekday uh, evenings, 
on on KPDQ uh, to tune in. Now, you have been on this station, as I mentioned. It will be almost 18 years in October. So you've been a fixture here, a part of the family at KPDQ for a number of years. Talk about how that um, that radio ministry is part of your church's uh, ministry into the city. Yeah. So part of the thing, you know, Georgina said, you know, we, we, we love our city. We know we have a call in, in our community, but our heart, our heart is to, even like when we had the fire, is to share the gospel with our city. And so years ago, the Lord had put a burden on our hearts to uh, reach out to our city uh, through, through the radio. And so we started the, we started the, uh, the program 17 years ago or so. And uh, it's just been a hard to continue to do that, to see, you know, people's lives impacted. And it's just been wonderful to see some of the fruit that uh, God has brought forth, you know, from, from that. And so we just appreciate you know, KPDQ and for that opportunity to be able to, you know, to reach out to our city, you know, through, through uh, meeting the radio. You know, one of the things that you have encouraged me to do personally is to love our city. I have been frustrated by our city. I've been made yes. angry by our city. I felt unsafe in our city. But you have continued to demonstrate a love for the city. Our love for it isn't based on public policy. It's not based on what's happening for the moment. But you've taken Christ's heart and extended that into the city. So I have appreciated that example. And your radio ministry, I think, has been a a help in that way as well. I know that radio ministry is challenging for a church. And as we've just described, you have extended uh, great faith that God is going to provide uh, for the church, the churches now that you are overseeing, but also for this ministry. And one of the reasons I wanted to invite you uh, to talk here today was to encourage our listeners who have either heard the program and have been blessed or who have yet to hear the program uh, to tune in and to consider supporting the program. Now, I know you would never say that because I know you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would never yeah. say that. But I'm, I'm yeah. saying this uh, on on behalf of my um, respect and regard for you, the church and this ministry. I would like to encourage our listeners to consider supporting Life Change uh, heard here on KPDQ because, you know, the way things are. Um, there's a possibility the program could go away. So I, I really want to encourage our listeners to make that consideration. Um, talk a little bit about the program for those who perhaps have yet to hear it. And so, so, so uh, you know, our program, you know, what we do is we, it's definitely Christ-centered. It's definitely a, a solid biblical message that we try to communicate. And then we try to put it in a way that, that relates to where, uh, People live. I know German German theologians had a term they call a term they call uh, coin called Zitzenleben, which actually means like in the in, in lifestyle in the place where people really live, the actual lifestyle setting or life place setting. And so we try to communicate the word of God to uh, to help people live for Christ, understand understand what God desires, and then empower them to live their life in the context they're in, in the way that God wants them to do. So, it's, you know, we try to stay, you know, just uh, simple, plain, um, you know, just nothing complex or difficult or too lofty, although sometimes lofty is good, but we want to, we, we want to communicate to people right where they live, right where they live. And that's, that's precisely what you do. I think for many of us, we need that simple, uncomplicated message, which is the gospel, 
um, yes. that will help us to remain faithful uh, and to love our city in difficult circumstances. And you've done that faithfully for almost 18 years. Uh, I want to let our listeners know that there's a possibility the program could end if we uh, don't support it. And so for that reason, I do personally want to ask our listeners to consider if you haven't listened uh, he'll be on tonight, 945 here on KPDQ. <laughs> yeah. Listen in. Uh, you have not, over the vast majority of those years, asked for listener support. Um, and yeah. this is uh, this is a new thing for you. I know it's uncomfortable, which is why I wanted to do, <laughs> to do it on your behalf. Uh, but yeah. I think it's a ministry worthy of listener support. And I want to do to e- e- extend that invitation and encourage our listeners to consider adding that to their portfolio of giving, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I just, I sincerely appreciate that. Cause, you know, we've done it for 18 years and we've never, you know, never really asked for any type of listener sponsorship at all. We just always, we've just always done it as a, as an outreach and we were able to do that. But, you know, now, you know, since COVID has taken place and things have happened, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of jostling and just kind of shifting within the church then, you know, things become just a little bit more difficult. So I sure appreciate it from all my heart, you know, you just taking the time to be able to do this because it's definitely something that we feel called by God to do. It's definitely, it's definitely a ministry that uh, we, are, we, are, we are passionate about. And, you know, just some listener support would just be very, very helpful to continue just to help us do what we've been doing, you know, uh, for so many years. And it's entirely appropriate that, When we benefit by and enjoy a ministry, we're edified, we're challenged, our walk is enhanced. It's entirely appropriate that we would help to support uh, the ministry. So much of what happens on uh, Christian radio is the result of listeners saying, yes, I'm blessed and I want to make sure that this ministry continues. So we want to extend that invitation to our listeners as well. What's the best way for someone to go about that? They can just go to uh, probably our website, Life Change Church dot org life change church dot org and then just go to the to the giving tab and there's a a pop down that just says for radio and they can give there or if they want to mail a gift they can do that uh by sending a gift to life change church uh p.o box one one nine five six portland oregon life change church p.o box one one nine five six portland oregon and i'll put that on the uh a KPDQ page and also Facebook. So listeners who okay. might be in their car at this time, I won't run off the road <laughs> <Yeah>. trying to <laughs> trying to write that down. Yeah. But I'll, I'll put those instructions online um, as well. Where do you see uh, your church and the church in general going in the days ahead? I know a lot of people are discouraged by what's going on in the culture, what's going on even within the church. Yes. What is your vision for the church looking ahead? You know, I, I you know I think need is going to always be there. So I, I go back to Isaiah sixty one, you know, which is Isaiah, uh, you know, speaking about Jesus's ministry. And then when Jesus began to minister in Luke four, he says the same thing: how the Spirit of God was upon him to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are bruised, to proclaim the accepted year of the Lord. And you know, the conditions that we that we're living in right now they're they're, they're very discouraging. And they're very disheartening. And, you know, for a fall of Christ, you almost think like, you know, you know, what is going on? It almost feels like, okay, God, we're losing this battle. If I can be honest, that's how sometimes you feel we're losing this battle. Because on the right and on the left, we see things that are so, 
drastically, diametrically opposed to the values of the Scripture, but yet they seem to get bigger and bigger and louder and louder and louder and louder. And so I think that uh, one of the things I've realized is that people are still people, and even though these things are going on, I think the, the, the need that people have in their hearts and the needs that they live with on a daily basis and the spiritual hunger that they have, I believe that some of these things are going to increase that hunger. And so I think there's, I think there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity for the church. You know, uh, you know, we may not be able to fix everything in culture. We won't. You know, that, that you know, we, doesn't mean we don't try to do what we can do. But we know that everything in our culture is not going to be sick until Jesus, you know, comes yeah. and reigns. But there, 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 there are things that we can do to make a difference. But we can, we can uh, share the gospel. We can, you know, spread the word of God. We can love people, and we can minister to to broken, you know, broken hearts. So like one of the things that we've been seeing even in our church is that, like, even with during the pandemic time with the George Floyd and just all the different racial chaos that's been, you know, mm-hmm. that's just been happening in the polarization. We've been seeing, you know, blacks, whites, you know, people coming together and, you know, just having a, you know, ha- having a hunger for God and God breaking down those, those type of things, because, you know, the, 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 the news media, uh, social media, uh, that voice does not tell the whole truth. And so I think that, it, it, you know, when we stick by, what God has called us to do, we still have an opportunity to impact a lot of people because it's getting it's getting it's getting pretty it's bad out there. Yeah. And people need hope and people need healing and people still need Christ. Well, and that's precisely what you uh, offer in your program, Life Change. Again, it's heard here on KPDQ FM, 945 p.m. If you're in the middle of something, it's about 14 minutes long, so you can. Uh, take that quick di- uh, message and digest it and uh, continue with your day. But you will be challenged, inspired, encouraged and instructed in the program. So tune in for those of you who have listened and just have taken advantage of the fact that it's available. Now's an opportunity to express a bit of gratitude and to help to support this ministry as it um, we are hoping will continue in the weeks and months and years ahead. Uh, Dr. Strong, thank you so much for your faithfulness, for taking the time to talk with us today. And we hope you'll continue to be a part of the KPDQ family for many, many years. Yes, that's that's what our heart's desire is, and we believe in the Lord to help us do. Thank you so much. And mm-hmm. tell Marla I said hi. I sure will. I sure <laughs> okay. will. Bye-bye. <laughs> sure. Bye-bye. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. An interesting study headline read nearly one third of schizophrenia cases in young men are linked to heavy marijuana use. This is according to a new study. As many as 30 percent of schizophrenia cases among young men may be linked to heavy marijuana use, which is certainly relevant here in the state of Oregon. This is according to a new study that analyzed data from more than six million people in Denmark. Well, the study published this month in Psychological Medicine also found that Proportion of new schizophrenia cases linked to cannabis use disorder has risen consistently since the 1970s, likely due to the increasing potency of the drug that many view as harmless. It's not your grandparents' marijuana any longer. A researcher analyzed five decades worth of data from more than 6.9 million people. The study was led by researchers at the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the Mental Health Services of the Capital Region of Denmark, at the National Institutes of Health. 
Well, the study adds to the mounting evidence that heavy use of high-potency pot can be harmful for people's mental health, particularly for young people and young men. And it comes as several states have recently legalized recreational marijuana use and are about to, or I should say, are uh, approving. Well, last month, Delaware became the 22nd state to legalize recreational marijuana. Maryland also legalized the drug this year, and Missouri legalized it last year. Minnesota is also on the verge of legalizing recreational pot. The state's House and Senate have both passed legalization bills, and they are in the process of resolving differences in conference committee. Ohio may vote on legalization later this year, and Florida legalization advocates are close to gathering enough signatures to put a pro-recreational pot constitutional amendment on the 2024 ballot. A constitutional amendment. Increases in legalization of cannabis over the past few decades have made it one of the most frequently used psychoactive substances in the world, while also decreasing the public's perception of its harm. Uh, The lead author of the study writes uh, in a prepared statement, this study adds to our growing understanding that cannabis use is not harmless and that risks are not fixed at one point in time. While previous research had shown that early and frequent cannabis use is associated with an increased risk of developing schizophrenia, the new study looked at the relationship between cannabis use disorder and schizophrenia based on sex and age. The researchers estimated that 15% of schizophrenia cases among men between 16 and 49 may have been avoided had the men not first developed cannabis use disorder. And for young men between the ages of 21 and 30, the researchers estimated that as many as 30 percent of schizophrenia cases may be linked to marijuana addiction. In other words, it's sort of a triggering event for some between 16 and 49. And while the research found strong evidence of an association between marijuana use and schizophrenia among both men and women, The association was stronger among young men, according to the study. Researchers estimated that 4% of schizophrenia cases among women 16 to 49 could likely be linked to heavy marijuana use. Last month, National Review highlighted the story of Catherine Mayberry, a one-time honor student and varsity athlete in Minnesota who, according to her parents, was diagnosed with schizophrenia after she became addicted to marijuana as an older teen. Her parents, Trent and Jane Mayberry, described their daughter's descent into psychosis. She struggled to speak, blasted music to quiet the voices in her head, had friends who likely weren't real. She eventually started using harder drugs and died in October from an overdose of methamphetamines laced with fentanyl. I'm 100% certain that it came from cannabis, Trent Mayberry told National Review of his daughter's psychosis. If she'd never used cannabis, there's a very high likelihood she would not have had these types of symptoms. Now, Dr. Robin McGregor Murray, a professor of psychiatric research at King's College in London, told National Review last year that those working at Britain's psychiatric services mostly agree that there is a relationship between cannabis and psychosis. And he said, there's definitely a connection with higher potency pot. I think that's why I didn't see people who were psychotic following cannabis use when I was young, he said. Again, it's not your grandparents' cannabis. The entanglement of substance abuse disorders and mental illness continues to be a major public health issue. Dr. Nora Volkow, of National Institute on Drug Abuse director and a co-author of the study, said in a prepared statement, as access to potent cannabis products continues to expand, 
It is crucial that we also expand prevention screenings and treatment for young people, for people in general, who may experience mental illness associated with cannabis use. The findings from the study are one step in that direction and can help inform decisions that healthcare providers may take in caring for patients, as well as decisions that individuals may make on their own about their own cannabis use. Now, it's legal in our society, but its potency is much greater, from what I understand, uh, than it was back in the day. I've never tried it. I'm not interested in it, but I am concerned about the impact it's having on many people who are regular users, and that has become uh, much more the case given the legalization uh, here in Oregon and, and, as mentioned earlier, across the country as there are states who have already legalized its use and many others who are considering doing so. I believe 22 states, as I mentioned uh, earlier, are currently uh, have legalized it, and there are several others uh, that are in the process of... Uh, Delaware was the 22nd state, as I'm looking Back at my notes, and there are others who are moving in that direction. Certainly something to consider, particularly among parents who are concerned about young people uh, using the drug. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blind for producing, Dave King for engineering. I want to remind you that you can support the Ministry of Life Change, the program heard here on KPDQ, 945 p.m. weekdays. Uh, the ministry could use your help. It's a great um fixture here in the uh, Portland metro area. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.